It's a brand new day, and we're putting the AM in American politics. We've seen the darkness of division and despair and are now jumping into the light of a bright path forward. Progress is here, and we're sharing its story with you, for you, all with the help of Signal Boost. Now, here are your hosts, Zerlina Maxwell and Jess McIntosh. Welcome to Signal Boost. This is Jess McIntosh. I am here with Zerlina Maxwell, and we are joined right now by Veronica Chambers. She is the editor for Narrative Projects at the New York Times and the author of the new book, Call and Response, the story of Black Lives Matter. This is the compendium of the movement that we have been waiting for, and we are very grateful to be able to talk to you, Veronica. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I'm a big fan. Oh, so are we. Good morning. Uh, this is just this is a gorgeous book. This is the the compendium of the movement that we've been that we've been waiting for. I, I wanted I wanted to start with the title because it's call and response. So talk about the tradition that that comes from and and how we see that playing out in the Black Lives Matter movement today. Sure. I mean, I think that I have to give credit to the title to Kwame Alexander, who was my editor and publisher at Versify. And, you know, he really took it, of course, from the griot tradition, but also from the protest tradition that you say something and someone responds whose streets are streets. And that, you know, it's a conversation. And I think that's what we wanted to put forward with this book, that it's not a single moment. It's not a definitive statement on one thing. It's a conversation that's ongoing about change and possibility and our country. I mean, one of the things about last summer that I think people are maybe now understanding, but maybe at the time didn't really fully grasp um, is that what happened last summer was a part of a, like a through line. Like it's been, it's continually been happening, um, you know, for, for generations. Um, and, you know, thinking about my parents' generation and their parents' generation and their, you know, like, I just feel like understanding that you're connected to something, um, in our past is an important um, thing to understand as we go forward when when we look about when, or when we think about what happened last summer and we sort of like have labeled it the racial reckoning if you will do you think that that understanding is becoming more clear for people because it was it was a diverse group of people of different ages and backgrounds and i feel like not everybody came to those protests or even came to sort of that moment we were having with an understanding of that connection to history yeah, I mean, I think I think that the Black Lives Matter, which unbelievably only turned eight years old this year, has done so much in such a short time. And I think yep. one of the biggest accomplishments of the movement is really shifting the dialogue from the idea of racism being about a racist person, a racist part of the country, and really continually bringing up the idea of systemic racism and yep. what that means. You know, it's the idea that Isabel Wilkerson talks about in past that this is America and who we have been for longer than we have been, than we have not. That's powerful. And I think that was one of the big things last year is that there was a shift. Not everybody got it, but I think a lot of people got it. 
Yeah. It certainly seemed to change the conversation. I remember being absolutely shocked last summer, especially as like a white person watching white people talk about this. You don't usually get the nuance of it. Right. But last summer Mm -hmm. you actually heard people explaining why destruction of property was not equal to destruction of life. There was there was an amazing article written called In Defense of Looting that was a, a, about ownership and the concept of ownership and why destruction of property might be a reasonable response to the taking of, of life. And that that's just not a place that this conversation has gone before. I felt like before before last summer, you would have to start by saying, of course, we don't condone any destruction of property. Like that was just sort of a knee jerk thing that had to be said before you were allowed to talk about the real issue, which is that people are being murdered. we don't go back. Right. Like once once something has has permeated the national consciousness in the way that I think systemic racism has, as opposed to individual racism, to the point that you were making, you can't put that back in the bottle. Right. Like we're we're just moving forward with this conversation at this point. Um, What do what do you mean? Do you mean that we're not that we can't go back to not remembering what systemic racism is. Yes, I, I, I mean, yeah. like when, when you're when you're watching the movement, when you see the national conversation shift, not not policies, nothing's nearly right. getting better for people day to day. But there is a, a, an awakening. There is an understanding that what you're talking about is not individualized. It is systemic. Is that the kind of thing that like the tide, you know, rolls back? Or do we move forward now with a greater understanding in perpetuity about what we're fighting? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that when I was younger and more naive, I thought we always move forward. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, we've seen a lot in this country over the last and in the world over the last five years. We've seen a lot over the last five weeks, five days. Um, it's, it's hard to take how short our memory can be. But I do think that the collective memory changes. I mean, I think for me, one of the most powerful moments last summer was seeing John Lewis at Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. Plaza and and just realizing, I mean, I'm almost gonna cry thinking yeah. about it, um, yeah. just how long we've been fighting. And, and you know, what I've been talking about with this book is that I think as a black person, as someone who grew up in, the you know 80s and 90s i i was constantly measuring how much my how much i would allow myself to hunger for true equality and i think that what i felt last summer and what i think this movement has injected into the nation is this energy of um okay you may need to take a nap you may need to self care you may need to step away but guess what we're not giving up on this right. we are not giving up on the business of equality. And that's pretty powerful. So one of the things that's really cool about your work is that um, you tell stories in a lot of different ways. You don't just write, you are a narrative storyteller. Um, For folks who don't know what that means, how do you, what do you, how do you describe it when, when people ask you what kind of storyteller you are? Sure. I mean, thank you so much. Um, That's so meaningful to me. I, you know, the work that I do at the New York Times, and I'm, I'm really lucky that my bosses and the leadership support it, is that I tell, like you said, I tell stories in a lot of different ways. So I don't just do straight reporting, 800 word, 1200 word articles. Um, for example, last year for suffrage, 
and the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, we actually worked with a playwright and a director, Whitney White, who's an amazing Broadway director, to do a staged play about women of color and the whole idea of troubling the word suffragist. And we had someone wrote a play, we filmed it, we, we made a theatrical experience about it. Um, sometimes we've done short films. Um, we've just done a lot of different things. We've, we try to work in every medium available to us. And this book is a, a multimedia book. It's you're, you're, there's photos, there's uh, snippets of conversation, there's obviously narrative. I think the, the Black Lives Matter movement has been frustrating to the opposition because there's no there's no linear history. Like there's there's no one organization. You cannot write to Black Lives Matter headquarters. It was founded by activists. It continues through activism. Talk a little bit about trying to piece together a story that is. It, it doesn't follow the, the sort of narrative that we come to expect where people come together, they create a thing, the infrastructure exists, the organization is there. Like, what was it like to pull together all of these different voices, which was essentially what the movement was doing to begin with? It, honestly, it was hard. And I think, you know, when we had our early readers and fact checkers, they were like, OK, I don't understand. 2013. What happened in 2013? A lot of different things. But then how did that lead to 2014? What exactly happened in 2015? How many people were in the movement? Who was in charge? None of that kind of traditional, like, you know, timeline of a movement was easy to pin down. So what we really tried to do was focus on the flexion points in the first half of the book. And I, I loved the conversation that you both were having about Naomi Osaka, because what we really did in the second half of the book is really look at the first half of the book is about Black Lives Matter and how we got here, systemic racism, all the underpinnings. But the second half of the book is what everyone did with it, because ultimately that's what I think is happening in America and all around the world. You're handed a history. The question is, what are you going to do with it? So we mm -hmm. looked at athletes, we looked at music, we looked at murals and artists, we looked at young people, the March for Our Lives, climate change. It's like, okay, we have this history that we're handed. What are we all doing with it? And that's where I think the power is. I think that's where the hope is. And, um, and it became a much better way to tell the story than to try to piece together like a single history. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things that's been fascinating to watch in the last year since um, the quote unquote racial reckoning um, is the backlash. And I wrote a book before the Super Tuesday in 20 in 2020. So we're talking before the pandemic, before there was even a Joe Biden as nominee. I literally finished my book when Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders like like were about to debate. Like it was like that week. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's a lot that's been going on since then. Um, yeah. But one of the things that I sort of landed on, which I think is is true, and I, it's a thread I can pull um, and and discuss now, is the idea that once people have that collective understanding of the systems that are oppressing people. And how those systems are maintained, uplifted, perpetuated, like how, you know, like once people are like, see the matrix, yeah. um, that's a threat <laughs> to the people yeah. who are running the matrix. Um, can you talk about the backlash? Because I have a whole chapter in my book, it's called 
the white resistance. And in some some days I think about that chapter um, because I'm like, oh, that chapter could have been a whole book itself. Um, can you t can you talk about the white backlash to, you know, suburban white people being like, oh, yeah, critical race theory. I read a book about that. I understand that now. And now I'm going to work to to um, dismantle these systems that oppress um, and how that's a threat. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that you you exhibit this so well in your book and you talk about it, you know, you really put your finger on it in the fact that there there is a backlash. There is, you know, someone, I, I forget who it is, I'm blanking, a historian talked about how in 1968, when there were uprisings, the suburbs and white people were really bewildered because they were like, you got the Voting Rights Act aren't you happy? And I think that's mm -hmm. a constant thing. It's like, you got X, is that enough? And the whole scope of our humanity, what it really means to have equality is the work of a lifetime. And I think people want, want to kind of nibble off a little bit of it, feel good about it, maybe post about it on social and move on. And I think the question is, there's this, you know, it's like a, um, it's a seesaw between some people who are just on for a second are going to jump up and leave, let the whole thing fly and the people who are really going to dig in and do the work. And, and I think that's been a challenge in our country for as long as we've been a country. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you want to think that progress is linear and instead it's, it's not quite cyclical, but it's uh it's, it's a pattern and it, it takes time to take hold. Are, are you optimistic in this moment? I, we've we've seen we've seen the conversation shift. We have seen it enter arenas where it's not usually allowed. Do you feel like do you feel optimistic? Do you feel hope when you're thinking about what our country looks like in 2024 or, or 2030? Because I'm, I'm having a I'm having a hard time accessing my hope these days. So I'm wondering if spending a lot of time with the last eight years of this incredible movement um, has has given you any. Um, yeah, I have, I have two answers for that. One, I'll say, you know, our book has more than 100 photographs, dozens by New York Times photographers. I, I think the thing I love about working with photograph photography first projects is you can look into people's faces and you can see some hope. I mean, one of my favorite pictures is of a little girl who's participating in a protest that was put on by the Compton Cowboys. And she's mm -hmm. this eight-year-old little girl. We've been in touch with her mom, who's like so psyched that she's in the book. And she's on a horse. And I just, every time I look at that picture and see her like riding her horse through Compton, I, I feel something. But the other thing mm -hmm. I will say is that, you know, I think that one of the reasons why Black history is so important. Why Black history is American history is that there's not a period in time, not a single decade, when Black people have been faced with the hardest, the harshest, the most devastating truths and realities and plot twists and turns and not responded with hope and radical imagination and creativity and a willingness to do the work. Literally, I, I challenge anyone to say, to point to a decade in American history when we said, nah, we're, we're done. We just never have. So I feel like it's always my business and my job to summon hope because that's what got us this far. And that's what Black people do. And, and I really think that's what 
all Americans can get from Black Americans. Like I, 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 I bristle at the idea that racism is about helping Black people solve something that's being done to them. I think if you look at Black American life and the core of it and the history, we have so much to offer this country at a devastating time. And if we look at how we live and how we move and how we activate and how we take care of each other, there's just a lot to draw from. And if we could put aside, you know, our um, defensiveness and our egos, I think that there's just so much to be gained from the wellspring of this recent history and the entire history. Mm -hmm. Love that framing. Yeah. It's not something that we have to, like, that has to be fixed that's being done. Like, it's white people's problem. Just you say this all the time. You actually are are a white person, (laughs) uh, a white presenting person um, that is open about this. And for some reason, I just feel like we we need more justice. You know what I mean? (laughs) Not for some reason, for the main reason. We need more justice because it's not it doesn't hurt her. She's not like in physical pain when she's acknowledging that there's a system with which, um, you know, she benefits. Um, and perpetuates it's the flip and side. Is- it's what Veronica was saying. I, I learn my God, like well, you right. read the 1619 project and you're like everything that's good in our country, everything that's good about our humanity, every dream that I want to believe in about America is being furthered and bettered by black Americans. Like I benefit from understanding that it's not a detriment. I don't understand why more white people don't get that. Like you want to enjoy black culture, appreciate what black people have done for your freedoms and your rights too. It's you get to have both. Why are we choosing? <laughs> yeah. True that. Well I said. Double true that. <laughs> I, I want kids to read this book. Is this something that you, did you have children in mind when you were putting it together? Because I feel like this is sort of the, a really great entree for kids of any race to what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we were thinking about younger kids. My daughter was 13 when all of this was going on. And, um, we were thinking about teachers, librarians, parents. I mean, it was a it was a hard day in June 2020 when I had to sit down with my daughter and really explain how many people had died in police custody. What was that about? What was going on? No, it wasn't anyone's fault. Whether or not she should be afraid. I mean, these are really um, difficult conversations, but it's also we, we hope it's an opportunity um, to for families and teachers and communities to start conversations. And you can start on, you know, you can start with the sports and the murals and and the protest songs and protest music, or you can go right into the history and black codes and what does defund the police mean? So there's really, we try to like make it almost like a, you know, forgive the religious analogy, like an Mm -hmm. advent calendar, you can open Mm -hmm. any little door and get some piece of it and go, you know, get in where you fit in to use a very black phrase. <laughs> I love it. I like that. Veronica Chambers, uh, the book is Call and Response, <laughs> Story of Black Lives Matter. Thank you so much for hanging out with us this morning. Thank you. You should definitely just check out all of Veronica's books. Mm-hmm. They're all amazing, mm-hmm. including um, for, for color girls who have never, um, for color girls who've considered politics is the one that was the name of the panel that we did with Mignon and Donna and um that and yolanda back when i first started at progress so full circle moment this morning get all yeah, of my favorite title for a book yes we love that so good. book and love those women great love talking them. to you guys thank you so much thank you so much please stay safe
Thanks for listening to the Signal Boost podcast. We'll be back tomorrow with more news.